morning that began with such joy, winning prize money in a competition, turned into pure horror as two innocent souls lost their lives at the hands of someone they knew, someone who was trusted by their family. For almost three years, the court case dragged on, postponed time and time again, and it seemed that justice would never be served. Although the 18-year-old girl who was killed had her life come to a tragic end, her dream of being well-known one day by many would be manifested into reality, just not in the way she had ever imagined or hoped. A life cut short and a life brutally ended. This is the tragic case of the murders of Jesse Hess and Chris Latachan. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. For those of you not from South Africa, here in August we celebrate Women's Month. And as I spent the month of June focusing on crimes that affected the LGBTQIA community, this month I will be focusing on cases where the victims were female. Cases where the very aspects and characteristics of being a woman played a role in their eventual demise. So, Let's get into it. Jessie Hess was born on the 25th of October 2000 to Lance and Brenda Miles. She had a brother, Darren, who was three years older than her. When she was three years old, her parents divorced and they shared custody of Jessie until her mother had moved to the US. Throughout the months prior to the move though, Brenda had been working on a cruise ship as a hairdresser. And thus, Jessie and Darren had lived with their extended family. When she would see her father, she loved spending time with him, whether that meant taking a drive out or him plaiting her hair, which never really turned out just quite as he hoped. However, in 2017, Jessie had gone to live with her grandparents, Kathy and Chris Latachan, as well as her aunt, Sandy Hess. Kathy worked as a preschool teacher and Chris was retired. They all lived together in a modest one-bedroom council flat in Beaumont Court, Paro. Her moving to Paro also allowed her the opportunity to grow closer to her father, who lived in a surrounding suburb and would often drop her at university or church. In her preteen years, Jessie was made a big sister after her father had welcomed a new baby girl into the family with his new partner. The baby girl was named Tristan and she was about 10 years younger than Jessie. The two got along really well and as she grew older, Jessie taught her how to do her makeup and braid her hair. Jessie's older brother, Darren Solomon, described his sister as loving, caring, smart and loyal. The two had a great relationship and he often competed with everything she did, from acting, drama and debate to other activities. She would often complain that she was tired of him copying her, but what she didn't realize was that she was actually inspiring him, like she did so many others. Within school, she was well-liked and attended Tableview High School. She was also a member of the Metros Fontaine Family Church of Nazarene, where she was a youth leader and taught Sunday school classes from children 9 to 12 years old. 
After she had matriculated, she decided that she wanted to be a preacher or a missionary, and so she had enrolled at the University of the Western Cape. She had decided to study towards a degree in theology, and although it was only her first year, she was known to ask the difficult questions and often push the boundaries. She was determined to not let anyone look down on her simply because of her age. And this determination also led to her being top of her class. But along the way, she consistently used her knowledge to assist others who were struggling, instead of just basking in the glory of being at the top. Her other passion was acting and drama, and the theatre formed an integral part of who she was. She had big goals and massive dreams, and even at her young age, she was manifesting them into reality. She dreamed of being famous one day. She wanted her name to be known, not only in her circle of friends and family, but to the wider world. And in the most heartbreaking way, and most definitely not the way she had planned, her dream would come true. The days leading up to those tragic events were like any other. However, two days before the horrors had unfolded, Jessie had not gone to church on that Wednesday, which was quite uncharacteristic of her. Instead, she had opted to spend the day with her grandmother, as the two were extremely close and she loved her It was almost as though she knew that her time was running out. And so the day dawned. On the 30th of August, the day started off on a high with exciting news as Jessie had won 5,000 Rand on the Heart 104.9 FM breakfast show. She had said on air that she was saving money to do something special for her grandparents and her aunt. She had further stated, They are very special to me because they took me in when I was in high school already and they have been looking after me. They work so hard and are sacrificing so much for me. Just 30 minutes after winning, her father had tried to call her to congratulate her, but her phone was off. Little did he know that whilst he was trying to reach her, the most heinous crime was occurring at the Latakhan his household. So that morning, Kathy had left to work as per usual, and Sandy had actually recently found a job, and so it was her second day at her brand new job. So that left Jessie and Chris in the home. Jessie had been preparing for a sermon that she was scheduled to give that night to the youth in Bontiervo, a disadvantaged community and area. And Chris, an elderly gentleman, was watching soccer. Although we may never be certain on the exact timeline of events, the following events are thought to have taken place that morning, according to the collaborative reports of the perpetrators. Mind you, these two reports had differed significantly in certain areas, which you will understand why later, but based on their accounts combined with forensic evidence, I have tried to reach an area of consensus. So here's what happened. Two men, one of whom was familiar with Jesse, let's call him Man A, had driven that morning to Baumont Court, the block of flats that Jesse Hess and Chris Latachan were in in Paro. According to the man who did not know Jesse, let's call him Man B, they were going to fetch some money that Man A said that the household owed him. 500 rand to be precise. Prior to this trip, as well as the night before, the two men had engaged in smoking tuck. After their morning hit, they headed to Paro in Man A's white VW Golf. 
Upon arriving at the flat, Opa Chris, Opa is basically grandfather in Afrikaans, had opened the door for the two men. Why did he do that, you may ask? Well, because he knew Man A. Man A had asked Chris for food, to which Chris had responded that there was not much in the home. However, he had headed to the kitchen to make the two men tea. As he had his back turned to the two men, Man A had walked up from behind him, placed his arm around his neck, and choked him until he had lost consciousness. Man B was allegedly in shock, not knowing what was happening and why. It was at this point that Jessie had come out of the bathroom with a towel wrapped around her head. She had come to see who was in the home as she had heard voices. Upon seeing the two men and her grandfather, she had attempted to bolt towards the front door. At this point, Man A had rugby tackled Jessie, knocking her to the ground. He then took off his shoelaces and he tied her hands. He then commanded her to stand up and walk to the bedroom. Whilst this was happening, Man B was instructed to remove the television from the lounge. Apparently terrified, at this point when Man A had disappeared into the bedroom, Man B had tried to exit the apartment. However, he soon discovered that the door was locked and the key was of course with Man A in the bedroom. After a short while, the bedroom door opens a little and Man B was able to see Jessie sitting on the floor without her pants on, dwood still. In Afrikaans, this basically means dead still. She had said absolutely nothing, but she was still alive. She was then asked by Man A for the pin to her bank card, which they had found in her bag. She had given it to them. He then asked her where the sellotape was before proceeding to shove a pillowcase and socks into her mouth before taping it shut. He then proceeded to strangle her with the belt of a gown. As Man B had gathered the items around the house, Man A had decided to return to Chris to finish off the job. He had placed a black belt around his neck before strangling him to death. It was evident that he wanted no witnesses. From the home, the men had taken two televisions, two cell phones, Jesse's rings, backpack, and a laptop. The items would later be sold to foreigners for 2,800 rand and Man B would receive 1,000 rand of the proceeds. Man A had also taken Jessie's clothing and her jeans were later found in the washing machine. In the car on the way from the apartment, Man A had cut up Jessie's ID card. During this time, Man B was allegedly terrified to do or say anything as it was supposedly known that Man A was also part of the notorious 28s gang. Man A had then dropped Man B home and he had warned him to not say a word. Allegedly, Man B had said that as soon as he got home, he was physically sick. In his own words, he had later said, I am not a violent person, but I was scared to run away because he knows those areas very well and I did what he told me to do. Back in the Paro apartment, Chris was left tied up in the bathroom and Jessie was left on the bed in the bedroom. Jessie was only 18 years old. Chris was 85 years old. Later that day, Sandy, Jessie's aunt, had grown worried after neither Jessie nor Chris were answering their phones. She had asked a neighbor to check on them, and it was at this point that the neighbor had spotted through the bathroom window, Chris slumped on the floor, seemingly unconscious. 
As I explained in an earlier episode, I think it was the Avril Gordon case, often in these types of apartments, one of the rooms will look directly on to the main passageway. Very soon, Lance had been called and his partner Audrey rushed to the flat to check on them. She broke the glass panel on the front door when she arrived. Once she had entered the apartment, everything appeared to look normal, with only a couch being moved that she immediately recognized. That was until she had stepped further into the home. Chris was lying in the bathroom, seemingly unconscious, with a black belt next to him. Jesse lay unresponsive blue in the face and naked except for a long sleeve pink shirt. Next to her body lay a belt. She had been gagged and her mouth, her eyes and her nose had been taped shut. Sandy, who later arrived, stated that that disturbing image was forever burned in her mind. Chris was found with a black belt next to him and his legs tied up. It took three hours for the police to arrive. During this time, after Sandy had arrived and witnessed the grisly scene, she stood and waited outside as neighbours began to flock to the home as word spread of the incident. When the police arrived, they confirmed that Jesse and Chris had passed away. It was evident to Sandy that there were no signs of forced entry. However, despite this, the police initially believed that it was just a robbery gone wrong. I mean, a robbery without any signs of breaking in? Well, it happens, but something should have raised an alarm for the police, as it just didn't sound right. Sandy, for one, was positive that there was more to the story. But the police officers did not bother taking statements from either Sandy or any other relatives. Sandy then had to break the news to Kathy, Jessie's grandmother and Chris's wife. How do you tell a woman that she's lost both her husband as well as her beloved only granddaughter in one horrific incident? That very same night, the family moved out of the one-bedroom council flat taking only their clothing. On the 7th of September at the Jubilee Church in Ravenmead, Jesse's memorial service was held, with people coming from near and far to pay their respects to Jesse Hess and bid her farewell. But although her and her grandfather's bodies were laid to rest, the perpetrators of this heinous crime were still unknown. And after months of investigations, still not one person was arrested. Jessie's 19th birthday came and went, her family praying for some form of closure. Kathy battled to sleep at night, mourning the loss of her husband and her granddaughter. As the days came and passed with no leads, a crowdfunding campaign was started to hire a private investigator. More than 66,000 rand was raised. And then, finally, there was a break. Three months after the murder, a person of interest was identified. That person happened to be none other than Man A. But the worst part? The family then received the news that this potential suspect was a relative and someone that Jesse had feared. His name? David von Boeven, Jesse's second cousin on her mother's side. 
Jesse's feelings towards David were evident, as later cell phone records recovered texts between her and her boyfriend, where she had described David as someone that used to be a family friend that takes drugs and is involved in gangs. She also revealed in the text that one day when she was alone at home, David had arrived at the flat, and she had pretended not to be in because she feared him. So... Who exactly was he? David van Boeven was from Hanover Park, an area characterized by its high levels of crime, violence, and gangsterism. Growing up, he lived in poverty, like many of those around him. Lance, Jesse's father, had actually known David when he was just a lighty, basically Afrikaans slang for youngster. David had called him Uncle Lance. Jesse's aunt Sandy was close to David and his family, as their household would often visit his family home, especially since his mother had become ill and had passed away around the middle of the year in 2019. David also grew up with the subculture of violence permeating his everyday existence. He left school in grade 9 and was known to have a substance abuse problem. He was also believed to be a member of the 28s gang. If you're interested in understanding more about gangs in South Africa, especially the numbers gang like the 26s, 27s and 28s, you can check out my episode on Cameron Wilson where I do discuss the concept in depth. So David was very much a product of his environment. He also had a young daughter at the time of his arrest. He would later use her and his court statements at his trial as a reason to why he should not be given a long sentence behind bars. He claimed that should he receive a very long sentence, then his daughter would grow up without a father. Fair enough, but what about Jesse and Chris's family members? They have to live the rest of their lifetime without their loved ones, without their husband, their daughter, their sister, their niece. But I digress. David was also, surprise surprise, no stranger to run-ins with the law, with the previous charge of aggravated robbery amongst other misdemeanors. He was actually in prison for seven years after the assault of a relative. He had been released on parole in December of 2018, and he had been out for eight months before the incident. Shockingly, it would later come to light that the police had arrested David five days after the murder. However, they had let him go as they didn't feel as though he was the man they were looking for. His arrest and thus being linked to the Chris and Latakhan murders actually came as a result of another incident that occurred in November of 2019. He had been arrested for that incident after he had been on the run for two days. Yeah, so let me catch you up. You see, he had robbed and raped a 16-year-old girl in Hanover Park. He had then bound her and the relative who was in the home and gagged and taped their mouths shut. The exact same modus operandi as in the Hess and Latakhan case. And so the comparisons were drawn and the dots were finally connected. David van Boeven was our man A in the crime, but... Who was Man B? His name was Taslim Buenki Ambrose. Taslim lived down the road from David in Hanover Park. 
Like David, he grew up in poverty with many of the same environmental factors, and he too had dropped out of school in grade 9. He also had a string of previous and pending drug-related cases, as well as a conviction for the illegal possession of a gun. And prior to his arrests, yes, I said arrests, in 2019, he had actually been a security guard. And he also, as was evident from his past charges, had a drug problem. He also allegedly smuggled drugs for a gang in the area. Taslim had actually been sitting in Polesmore Prison after he was arrested on the 2nd of September for a drug possession charge. After David's arrest, it was not long before Taslim was mentioned and implicated. The two men had then appeared on the 13th of November in the Belleville Magistrates Court. David had his hoodie pulled down over his face and avoided eye contact with the courtgoers. When they had shouted at him to remove his hoodie, he had said, For what will ye me seen? Why do you want to see my face? The absolute cheek. The pair initially faced two charges of murder and two charges of aggravated robbery. Both individuals chose to not even apply for bail. David then opted to apply for legal aid, whereas Taslim said that he would represent himself. David also stated that he had no idea what had happened to Chris and Jesse, and he had said, I don't have sleepless nights worrying about the charges against me, because I didn't kill anyone. The crowd in the court were livid and shouted at him, Papa wacht for you. Yay is a chamorse. The case had its very first, but not near last, postponement to the 12th of February 2020. Two days later though, on the 15th of November, the 31-year-old David appeared yet again. This time, however, in the Weinberg Magistrate's Court. He was appearing on and robbery charges following the attack of the 16-year-old girl in Hanover Park that passed Monday. He once again did not apply for bail. As I mentioned, the Hess and Latakhan case would undergo many postponements, with the pandemonium of 2020 only adding to the slow action of justice. And then, in a weird turn of events, in February of 2020, both Taslim and David threatened civil action. If they did not receive the DNA testing results and therefore proof that they were linked to the murders. Yeah. I wish I was making this up too. David had complained that he had been in custody since November, with no evidence to link him to the case being presented to him. Taslim, who was representing himself as I previously mentioned, but opted for a legal aid lawyer for that session, claimed that he felt the same way as David. The magistrate, Charles Scott, was not perturbed by their claims and also brought about the fact that neither had applied for bail either. He elaborated that there was evidently some link for them to be arrested in the first place. And so the court case dragged on, awaiting DNA testing results. And for the loved ones of Jesse and Chris, the mental anguish was almost unbearable. Sandy had told the media, You don't get over it. You just learn to live with it. It becomes part of your life, that hurt and pain. And to add to that turmoil, the pandemonium of 2020 left Kathy, a preschool teacher, jobless. Sandy was still unable to find work after losing her job as a result of the aftermath of the murders, and her son was also let go from his company that was forced to close due to the state of the country and the world. 
And then, of course, the relations with their extended family was incredibly tense due to the ongoing trial and, of course, the alleged actions of David. The trial was moved to the Western Cape High Court and resumed on the 23rd of October 2020. But when the day finally came, the case was postponed again to the 27th of November. This time, the postponement was for legal consultations for the alleged perpetrators. But regardless of the fact that over a year had passed since the murders, supporters kept showing up at the court, wearing t-shirts with Jesse's face and Chris's name on them, supporting the family members. At that following court hearing, the case was again postponed, this time to the 3rd of May. I wish I was making this up, but this is unfortunately quite common. And then on the 3rd of May, yeah, you guessed it. The case was postponed again, this time due to an apparent heavy caseload. Almost two years later and still not one bit of justice had been served. And so the family waited for 2022, hoping for a resolution of some sorts. But before the new year rolled around, the University of the Western Cape paid tribute to Jessie Hess on what would have been her 21st birthday. They created and produced a beautiful compilation of friends and family members sharing their love and memories of Jessie. I've added the link to that video in the description of this video, should you want to go watch it afterwards. The youth group that she ran at her church had also decided to celebrate her spirit and life by creating and distributing care packs for young women at shelters in Cape Town. And even though her life had come to an end, her legacy was living on. And so 2022 rolled around. For many, the new year brings the possibility of new chapters. But for others, like the friends and family of Jesse and Chris, it ushered in the hopes of closing a painful and traumatic chapter to finally allow healing. On the 3rd of February 2022, Taslim and David appeared in court. Both men pleaded not guilty to two counts of murder, rape, aggravated robbery and fraud. The fraud charge was related to a thousand rand withdrawn from Jesse's bank account. This occurred at the spa in Kassel's Flay Road, Belleville South. The media was given permission to photograph both men. However, after initially attempting to hide his face, during a court break, David had tried to lunge at a female journalist attempting to take his photo. Officials were forced to intervene. During the trial, David's former girlfriend, Letitia Fortain, who was 31 years old and a mother of four, took the stand. She testified that she met him on social media and they had been in an 11-month-long relationship. They had a daughter together in 2020, but they had split after David had been arrested for the rape of the 16-year-old girl in Hanover Park. She testified to the fact that the day before the murders, David had left the home that they shared and he did not return that day. He had, however, come back the next day, after midday, with no reason or comment on where he had been. That very same day, as David worked on his car outside, Taslim had popped by, and the two had engaged for a while. Letitia also mentioned that David, at a later stage when asked about the murders, had told her that he did not kill anyone, and he was not having sleepless nights. No ghosts were drucking him. While she testified, David held his hand over his mouth and scowled. 
Another individual, Elizabeth Kester, who sold drugs from her home and who passed away five months prior to the court case, had previously compiled a written statement. Within this, she mentioned how David knew her son Desmond as they had met in prison. She had spoken about his tendencies for David to have stolen goods on hand, often which he sold at various locations. It also came to light that David had sold Jesse and Chris's phones to a foreign national, who, when he was later arrested, had ended up identifying David. During this trial, David opted not to take the stand. Initially, that is. Taslim, however, testified on the stand, stating that David had threatened to hurt him in Polsmore if he had spoken to the cops. He had teared up in the dock, saying that he feared for his life as David was a 28th scully and had rank in prison. During the lunch break after his testimony, David was heard openly threatening Taslim. During Taslim's plea explanation, he stated that the double murder and the ensuing crimes were solely the doing of David, his co-accused. He also denied being involved in the assault and he claimed that he was scared. And even when David was trying to sell some of the items, he had tried to call his father from one of the phones, which turned out to be Chris's phone, for help. This actually did match up with the subpoenaed cell phone records which linked Chris's phone to him. Taslim had said, I complied because I was afraid of my life, having experienced what David was capable of. I attempted to flee from the flat but could not manage to. Jesse and Chris's family members bravely showed up each day in the trial. However, when it was time for the graphic descriptions and accounts of what had happened to the two to be heard, Kathy could just not bring herself to face that horror. Over two and a bit years later, she had only recently stopped having nightmares. And perhaps it was better that she didn't attend. During the scientific evidence and reports detailing the murder of Jesse and Chris, David had yawned. Taslim, on the other hand, had listened intently, his head bowed. A forensic pathologist, Dr. Grace Uren, confirmed that Jesse had been smothered. She detailed how Jesse had a sock and pillowcase stuffed in her mouth, before it, along with her eyes and nose, were taped shut. She also believed that Jesse was. However, although recent trauma could not be seen on her body, that was potentially due to the fact that a condom was used. There was also the high possibility that Jesse was not conscious during this episode, which would also have resulted in less injuries that were common with an assault of this nature. During the pathologist's testimony, the friends and family members of the victims seemed pained by the narrative being told. Lon struggled to listen to the harrowing details unfold in court. Some nights I couldn't sleep because I kept imagining what Jessie and her grandfather went through. At times I felt like I could jump over the stands in court and choke those guys. I have a better idea of what happened but it was not quiet. Sitting there and listening to the violent way in which my daughter died. Especially because she was such a peaceful and spiritual person. But on the other side of it, David was sitting in the dock, pulling faces at the media in the press box. He was later admonished by the judge and his advocate was instructed to tell him to behave. Charming. 
The week of scientific evidence continued, and it was heard that DNA evidence could not link either of the two to the crime. Although semen was found, there was not enough of it to analyze. As the trial resumed, David then showcased a new narrative that included him being assaulted by the police, beaten with a broomstick handle and table leg, almost asphyxiated with a bag and choked with a belt, allegedly. These claims were denied by the police officer testifying, Lieutenant Colonel Adrian Pretorius, an officer for 33 years. He showcased images of David taken after his confession that showed no visible injuries. He claimed rather that David had been relaxed and relieved when telling his version of events. And so the cross-examination and testimony continued as a trial within a trial took place. And although the focus should have stayed on Jesse and Chris, David somehow managed to make it all about himself. And add in some seemingly false allegations for a diversion. He, however, was caught in a lie when records from Polesmoor Prison showcased that he lied about being kept at Makassar Police Station, where he was also allegedly abused. And with that discovery, the warning statements and his confession were entered into evidence officially. During his testimony, he denied confessing anything related to the murder of Jesse Hess and Chris after all the lies were waded through and heard, eventually the courtgoers, friends and family received the news they had been hoping for. On the 9th of May 2022, David van Boeven was convicted and found guilty in the Western Cape High Court on two counts of murder, two counts of robbery with aggravating circumstances, as well as charges of assault, fraud and theft. Taslim Ambrose was acquitted of the murder, sexual assault, fraud and theft charges. He was convicted and found guilty on two counts of robbery with aggravating circumstances. Upon hearing the verdict, the friends and family of Chris and Jesse expressed their gratitude in the almost finalized proceedings and they hoped that they would now be able to focus on healing. They said they knew that David was guilty, but having it in black and white was the final step. And so, on the 19th of July, the two men were sentenced, ending an almost three-year ordeal for the friends and family members of Chris and Jesse. David van Boeven was handed down two life sentences for the murder of Jesse Hess and Chris Latachan. He received eight years for the sexual assault of Jesse and three years for fraud. As life sentences were imposed, his sentences will run concurrently. The public gallery ushered a whispered yes upon hearing his sentence. Taslim Ambrose was sentenced to six years for being an accessory to the robberies, with the two counts being taken as well. During the sentencing, Judge Judith Kluter acknowledged their difficult formative years, however reiterated that many individuals grow up in these circumstances but don't go on to commit the crimes that they did. She had proceeded to state, The impression David has left this court is that he has no respect 
respect whatsoever for the right to life, dignity and safety of other persons and their property. The evidence demonstrated that he is an individual who preys on the defenseless and vulnerable and has no compunction even when it comes to close relatives in the sanctity of their own home. To my mind that makes him a deeply disturbed individual but it goes further than that. He is also an extremely dangerous one. He sat smirking and appeared to enjoy the attention from the press. Accused two, Taslim, was the opposite. Accused one is clearly intelligent. She concluded by stating that he had shown no remorse for his vile crimes as opposed to Taslim, who had confessed and apologized to the family of the victims. He had even entered a drug rehabilitation program whilst on trial. He had stated, Since being in custody, I have not used drugs. I have not tried to get drugs in prison. To the families of the two people, I am sorry. It was not my plan or idea to bring them any harm. Please forgive me. Judge Kluter stated that 8 out of 10 of Taslim's previous convictions were for drug possession. One was for ostensibly finding a gun in a felt and being on his way to the police to hand it in when he was apprehended. The other was common assault during a fight over borrowed tools not returned to him. Based on observations during the trial, it appeared that Taslim had a chance for reformation and rehabilitation. David was another story altogether though. He had spent seven years in prison prior to the murders, so it was evident that he did not want to change his behavior or his way of life. And just one month after his initial conviction in the Hess and Latahan case, David was back in court for the assault and charge of the Hanover Park 16-year-old girl. He had known her as she was related to his girlfriend at the time. She had opened the door to him and he had then overpowered her, eventually sexually assaulting her. There was another relative in the home and he had tied both of them up, bound them and gagged them before placing items in their mouth and taping them shut. As I mentioned, the very same MO as used with Jesse and Chris. The relative, however, had broken loose and ran for help after he had placed a packet over her head. His trial in that regard is still ongoing, but sources close to the investigation say that his DNA has been positively matched to fluids found on the crime scene. And so, just like that, after almost three years, the court case was closed. And the family of Jesse and Chris are finally allowed the chance to heal. And boy, do they need it and deserve it. Besides the tragic loss of their loved ones, these last few years have had a massive impact on their mental health, their financial well-being and their happiness. Lance says that the way he lost Jesse changed his entire parenting style. He grew fearful and would not let his daughter out of sight whenever possible. His daughter, Mrs. Jesse, who taught her so much. Lance's relationship with his wife and Jesse's stepmom, Audrey, bore the brunt of the grief and stress of the years, with Lance moving out of their home. His career business also took a knock, as he had frequently missed work due to attending court proceedings. He said that although he believes that justice was served, he feels no closer to finding closure. 
He had said, at the end of the day, those guys are going to jail on my tax money. I'll actually be funding the lifestyle of someone who killed my child. I'm trying to forgive them because I think it will help me find closure, but I'm not ready. I've been thinking about forgiveness a lot because that's what Jessie would have done. She'd forgive. He had also attended a few therapy sessions when the case had started. However, they were expensive, so that had kind of fallen to the wayside. He did state that this entire ordeal has shown him that it's okay to not be okay. He had said, My advice to men who deal with their children being killed, just cry it out. If you can't go to a professional, go to your pastor, your imam, or your friends and family, but speak. He hopes to one day start a support group where he can help other fathers. So what kind of person is capable of such monstrosities? Well, of course environmental factors have a major role to play. I mean, majority of the gangs within South Africa, if not all, are rooted in areas rife with unemployment, poverty and violence. As I mentioned earlier, I do go further into depth about gang life and the road that leads to it in my Cameron Wilson case episode. So obviously environment has a major influence, but how many people grow up in these areas and lead productive and wholesome lives despite their surroundings? I'll tell you, a heck of a lot. So obviously there's more at play. David von Boeffen didn't have any psychiatric evaluations conducted as he did not express any mental health issues that impacted his frame of mind before, during, and after the murders. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a mental component to his motives. I cannot diagnose anyone in this way or form, so the following musings are just my observations on his attitude, behavior, and actions, which are also impacted by comments made by the judge on his overall character. David von Boeffen appears to be quite arrogant. Not only that though, but it's evident that he thinks that he is not only smarter than, but superior to law enforcement. This is noticeable during his attempts to claim that he was attacked after his arrest. And by the way, he instigated the notion of civil action if DNA results were not produced on time. His arrogance has more than likely been reinforced over the years due to his alleged ties in the gang. He is said to have rank, which means that he has power and control over anyone below him. And power has a strange way of creating monsters. Another aspect that permeates David's existence is that of violence. I don't doubt that the violence of his surroundings growing up played a role in developing the existing undertones of aggression that lay within him. And I'm sure his involvement in the 28s, a notoriously violent gang, fueled that fire. The murder of Jesse and Chris was unnecessary. Out of everyone he could have chosen to harm that day, he chose to go into a home where he was known and seemingly trusted, at least enough to be let in the door. And he knew that. He took advantage of a situation where he knew he could be dominant and in control. Together with another grown man, he took on a young woman and an elderly grandfather and he didn't care. What I also found incredibly interesting, especially with the wording that she used, was the judge's observation of David's behavior during the trial, 
where she had said, He has something of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde manner about him. If he is getting his way, he can be charming and is clearly intelligent. However, when he is not getting his way, he transforms into an aggressive and violent person. David believed that he could do what he wanted, take what he pleased, whether that was another person's body or a material possession. And most importantly, he believed that he could get away with it. The judge also stated that David did not take no for an answer. The consequences of his actions didn't faze him. During the trial, he smirked at the forensic pathologist's disturbing and detailed report. So, for those of you who have been listening to my episodes for a while, taking all of what I've just told you into account, what do you believe was brewing under the surface? If you answered antisocial personality disorder, then you most definitely knew where I was going with this. So, like I said once again, this is not a diagnosis, it is just purely my observations. The typical characteristics and symptoms required for a diagnosis of APD according to the DSM-5 are as follows. Disregard for and violation of others' rights since age 15, which is indicated by sub-features. There are seven in general and I'm mentioning all of them because they are all applicable within this case. 1. Failure to obey laws and norms by engaging in behavior which results in criminal arrest or would warrant criminal arrest. 2. Lying, deception and manipulation for profit or self-amusement. 3. Impulsive behavior. 4. Irritability and aggression manifested as frequently assaulting others or engaging in fights. 5. Blatantly disregards safety of self and others. 6. A pattern of irresponsibility. 7. Lack of remorse for actions. The other main points to note is that the person needs to be at least 18 years old and conduct order must have been present before the age of 15. Signs and symptoms of conduct disorder include serious persistent behavior problems such as aggression towards people and animals, destruction of property, deceitfulness, theft, serious violation of rules. Lastly, the antisocial behavior should not occur in the context of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. It's also important to note that APD is comorbid, meaning that it can exist with other conditions such as substance abuse disorder. So it seems that many of the boxes of APD could be checked for David. But like I said, it's not a diagnosis, so we wouldn't really know unless an evaluation was done. Although Taslim is not the focus of my musings here, it is to be noted that the judge stated that he had never once appeared aggressive or violent and came across as quite timid. She had said, I am persuaded from the time he was collected by Van Boeven until they left the Paro flat that accused number two, Ambrose, was essentially telling the truth. It does make sense that for many reasons, drugs being the main one, Taslim may have found himself caught up in that situation. He could have also very well gone into a state of shock or disbelief when everything went down, which would have explained why he did not react. David was adept at manipulation and control, so it stands to reason that this affected Taslim. It of course does not lessen his responsibility in the crimes committed though. Crimes that resulted not only in the loss of an elderly man, a husband, a grandfather, but also another young woman. A woman with her whole life ahead of her. 
a woman with dreams and goals and hopes. And just days before Jesse's murder, Uyanene Mwechana was killed in a post office. And just days after Jesse's murder, Lihandre Baby Lee Jagels was shocked by her estranged boyfriend. And in 2019, South Africa said enough is enough. The Am I Next movement dominated headlines, protests and the media. Women were being killed left, right and centre and fellow South Africans begged the president to declare a state of emergency. According to crime statistics for the period of October to December of 2021, 903 women were reported to have been murdered and 11,315 reported rapes took place. And you know what? A large number of these murders and assaults were at the hands of perpetrators who were known to their victims. I mean, that asks the question, how can you ever really be safe as a woman in South Africa? The emphasis is always placed on women to protect themselves, to dress appropriately, to carry pepper spray. But even with all of those precautions in place, does it even matter? Uya Nene was in a post office. Jessie was at her home with her grandfather. Hannah was dropping a friend home. Courtney was watching cartoons. None of them saw it coming or even stood a chance. In 2020, the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, committed to enacting three bills relating to gender-based violence into parliament. First up, there was an amendment to the criminal law, the Offences and Related Matters Amendment Act. The amendments would see, amongst other things, provision for the names of persons on the National Register for Sex Offenders to be made public, something which is not a thing here in South Africa. Next up, the Criminal and Related Matters Amendment Bill tightens, amongst others, the granting of bail to perpetrators of gender-based violence and femicide and expands the offences for which minimum sentences must be imposed. And lastly, the Domestic Violence Act would see the definition expanded and the failure to report violence against a child, person with disability or an older person resulting in fines or even imprisonment. All I can say is that I wish that last act was around and amended during the Poppy van der Merwe case. But while we wait for all these bills to be amended and gazetted, we need to do what we can to protect one another and ourselves. I know I have quite a diverse and global audience base, so I do apologize in advance if the below recommendations are only available in South Africa. If you're not in South Africa and you're not interested in listening to this segment, please feel free to skip ahead. I just want to share two apps that may help to keep you and your loved ones safe. And no, before you ask, full disclosure, no one has paid me to share anything, I promise. My first app suggestion is Iris, E-Y-E-R-U-S. Iris is a virtual companion that uses smart technology to give you peace of mind. It offers four key safety modes for you to indicate how safe or unsafe you feel, and then it activates the relevant features accordingly. These include Amber Mode, which is activated by shaking your phone, which triggers location tracking and audio streaming. Blue Alert Mode, for example, will dispatch private security services with a response time of five to eight minutes in urban areas. And another cool feature is the dead man trigger. So basically you activate it if you're feeling uneasy, for example, walking to your car. If your finger is released from the trigger, a 10 second countdown begins. 
notifications. And if your unique code isn't entered, the app will then enter the subscribed alert mode. As far as I'm aware, this app is available on both iOS and Android. And my second app suggestion is Namola. Available free to all South Africans using an iOS or Android enabled smartphone. Namola has South Africa's largest aggregated emergency response network and it works in a very simple three-step manner. Press the panic button which leads to verification by the control room and then ultimately the dispatch of the required services. It's not okay that this is the world that we live in and that fearing for our very existence as a woman is not just a South African experience. Although Jessie is no longer here in physical form, her memory remains, not only with those who knew and loved her, but those who learn about her story now. Those like you, the person listening to her narrative. Every year, the Hess and Latakhan family remember Chris and Jesse by celebrating their lives, their passions and their favourite things. And like one of Jesse's favourite things, sunflowers, I implore you, the listener, to stand tall, even in your darkest days. And I wish you the strength to always be able to face and live in the beauty of the light, today and always. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!